Well, as we saw last Sunday night when we looked at the idea of taming the tongue or controlling the things that we say, we saw how James linked the issue of one's speech to a person's very spiritual identity. We learned that the tongue directly evidences what lies within the heart of a person. And we learned that those who fail to control their tongue as a matter of habit and practice, and who continually spout evil and lies and curse and revile those who are made in the image of God, they show themselves to not be in the faith. By their conduct, they show themselves to be still dead in their sins. This was the point of James' analogy, where he stated that a spring cannot bring forth both salt and fresh water, or that an olive tree cannot bring forth figs. He was saying that the quality of a thing is known by what it produces. True believers, out of the treasure of the goodness of their washed and redeemed hearts, produce good, encouraging, uplifting speech, while unbelievers, out of the sin and corruption of their unredeemed hearts, produce evil, degrading, and corrupting speech. So once again, we saw that James made clear that Christians would naturally show forth the evidence of their salvation by the things that they do and say. This, I say again, is the main theme of James' letter. And James keeps bringing this idea out in a, in a bunch of different ways. In chapters 1 and 2, he gave particular focus to caring for the needy and to personal holiness. He placed emphasis on the sin of discrimination and the showing of partiality towards the rich. And here in chapter 3, special attention is given to the things that we say with our tongue. The main point in all these matters is that genuine Christians will obey this righteous instruction, behaving in a way that is in keeping with the truths that they hold, while those who merely claim to be Christians will not. And this theme continues here in the section that we're studying this morning. James still wants believers to show the genuineness of their faith by the things that they do. So here in the latter part of chapter 3, James is about to make an important distinction for anyone seeking to ensure that their lives are producing the fruit of righteousness. James is about to distinguish between two kinds of wisdom. Now recall that James has taught us about wisdom before. If you look back at chapter 1, in verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So we learn that wisdom comes from God and that it must be asked for. And that those who ask in faith or those who ask in the faith or as believers will be given wisdom by their Heavenly Father who is generous. So we should already know about the wisdom of God and its importance in the Christian life. But James wants us to know that there is another wisdom. Wisdom not from God above but from the devil. A wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. This is a false wisdom that does not produce the fruits of righteousness. Instead, James says it produces disorder and every vile practice. Instead of the peace and unity that results from heavenly wisdom, earthly wisdom produces fighting, quarreling, and strife. So what James is doing here at the end of chapter 3 is priming his audience for what he is about to say. I want you to look for a brief moment at chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. 
Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this right now because this chunk of James letter will be our focus tonight. But what I want you to see is how closely the end of chapter 3 is linked with the beginning of chapter 4. It reads, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So notice the main point of the text that we just read. It's a rebuke of fighting and quarreling that was going on among some in James' audience. All of this strife and chaos in the church, according to James, was coming as a result of earthly wisdom. Those who displayed these sinful characteristics were doing so while being proud and puffed up by this earthly wisdom. This demonic wisdom had as its fruit bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, fights, quarrels, ungodly passions, spiritual adultery, and pride. And so before rebuking these sins in chapter 4, he rebukes their source here at the end of chapter 3. Evil, demonic, unspiritual, earthly wisdom. So here's the point of the passage we're studying this morning. James wants us to know the difference between heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom because heavenly wisdom produces righteousness while earthly wisdom produces wickedness. If we are to be good trees producing good fruit, we need the heavenly wisdom of God. But the danger that we oftentimes face is that what we think is heavenly wisdom is actually earthly wisdom. So let's spend some time this morning learning the difference. So James begins by asking the rhetorical question, who is wise and understanding among you? This is less of a question and more of a statement. It's as if James is saying, many of you think that you are wise, but you really aren't. He's challenging the perception that some in his audience apparently had. A perception or view of themselves that they were wise and understanding. And so James puts their wisdom to the test, saying, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. The first thing we should notice is that there is a way to determine if someone really is wise. It doesn't matter what others think about you or what you think about yourself as it pertains to your own wisdom. Wisdom doesn't automatically come from, say, a person's job or their station in life or their rank in any particular organization. No, James tells us 
Wisdom must be displayed. Your level of wisdom and understanding should be evident by the way that you live. What I mean is that wisdom cannot simply be assumed. It must be proven. Many in the world today are assumed to be wise, based simply on their station in life. They may be learned university professors, or popular political figures, or powerful business executives. Even popularity and celebrity seems to bring with it some notion of wisdom. Just look at celebrities and how often their opinions on serious matters are sought and trusted. Oftentimes these celebrities have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Yet they are seen as wise based simply on who they are. But James tells us that wisdom is to be seen in one's conduct. So no, celebrities show themselves to be unwise when they live lives of sinful indulgence. And powerful business executives show themselves to be unwise when they embezzle money and steal from others. And politicians show themselves to be unwise when they lie and twist the truth being caught up in scandal after scandal. And university professors show themselves to be unwise when they reject the truth of God, promoting godless ideologies and teaching them to others. Wisdom must be seen in the good behavior and righteous conduct of a man. But we can get more specific than that. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So the question then becomes, what kind of good behavior displays wisdom? So are the Muslims wise when they do good and they open up soup kitchens for the poor in the name of Allah? Are Buddhist monks wise when they do good in avoiding drunkenness and intoxication? According to Proverbs 9.10, the answer is no. For they have not done the very first step to becoming wise. They do not know the Lord. The God reveals in the Holy Bible. They do not know the great I Am who is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. They do not know Jesus who is the Christ, the Son of God and God in the flesh. The point, brethren, is that true wisdom, heavenly wisdom, must be displayed in the life lived. And listen to this, it can only be displayed by believers in Jesus Christ. It can only be displayed by those who are chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We who are believers are the only ones on earth who know God. We are both known by God, intimately and specially, and we know God. And all this by the grace and mercy of God. And so it is in this loving relationship where we know God and He knows us that we become wise. And through the work of the Spirit of Christ in our lives, we do good works. Good works in keeping that with the faith that we both possess and profess. So you must be a Christian to be wise. You cannot reject God and disobey God and think yourself to be wise. That, in fact, is the very definition of foolishness. That's what James is saying to those who think themselves wise. First, you need to make sure that you know God. And then, you need to be doing works in keeping with that knowledge. And we already know what some of those works are. James has already told us. Caring for the needy. Being impartial to both rich and poor. Controlling your speech. When you do these things and all the other good things instructed and taught in Scripture, all the while 
trusting in Jesus alone, then and only then can you be said to be wise and be said to have understanding. And there's another element to this. James says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness, in the meekness of wisdom. This is another thing that James has taught us about before. In verses 19 to 21 of chapter 1, he said, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. When we study this portion of the text, we learn that we are to be teachable people. We're not to be proud and haughty and, and brash, but we are to be humble, lowly, gentle people, being thoughtful in our speech, considering how we are to answer each person, being slow to become angry and slow to speak, but quick to listen. And we are to receive the instruction and correction of Scripture with all humility. So it is this same meekness that James is telling us is the fruit of heavenly wisdom. When we believe in Christ and do good works in Christ's name, we are to do so with meekness. We are to be gentle. We are to be humble. We are to show our works in the meekness of wisdom. What this tells us, friends, is that truly wise people are humble. They do not boast and become puffed up by the things that they understand. Because the main thing that the truly wise person understands is that everything he knows has been revealed to him by God. And that without, without the work of the Spirit on his heart, he would have no ability to even comprehend the things of God, which are necessary to make one wise. Friends, true, because true wisdom starts with knowing God and his Christ, we understand that without God and his Christ, we would all be doomed to face the consequences of our foolishness. The very first thing that the wise and understanding person comes to understand is that he deserves nothing but eternal punishment. The very first thing that the wise person understands is that, like the tax collector in Jesus' parable, who would not even lift his eyes up to heaven out of shame, he understands that he needs to beat his breast and cry out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The chest of the truly wise person can never be puffed up in pride before God because it is so beat down by the knowledge of his guilt before God. And so the only option that the truly wise person has is to be humble before God to whom he is accountable. And even more so when he understands that in Christ Jesus, undeserved forgiveness has been given to him in unbounded measure. That more than just rescue from sin, God in his love has promised reward to those who love him. And thus the truly wise person says in his heart, Lord, everything good about me has come from you. It is you who has worked in me. It is you who has worked through me. Yet I am promised reward as if I had done good on my own. Who am I that you should look upon me favorably? I am but dust. Ah, but God displays his love in that he cares for we who are but dust. Such is the glorious grace of God. You know, sometimes I hear scoffers say that 
They can't believe in the God of the Bible because why would the God of the Bible, who is this great, omniscient, eternal being, even care about human beings? He wouldn't concern himself with us. But that's the very point. The very point that we are but grasshoppers to God. And he loves us. Brethren, just know that heavenly wisdom makes you humble when you consider these things. And heavenly wisdom also makes you gentle and forgiving. When you understand that you wronged God. That you owed a debt to him that was impossible to pay. Until God himself had pity on you and paid your debt with the blood of his own precious son. How then can you hold anger in your heart and be unforgiving and harsh with those who wrong you? See then, that heavenly wisdom is the basis for conflict resolution in every human relationship. In marriages, among neighbors and work colleagues, in the family, in the church. When tonight we look at the quarrels and fights in chapter 4, know that right here in chapter 3, James has provided for us the way these things are resolved, if not avoided altogether. Heavenly wisdom. So the wisdom of God that comes from heaven is displayed in meekness, gentleness, and humility, and in the righteous deeds and speech of the people of God. Earthly, demonic wisdom, on the other hand, is the exact opposite of everything that I've just said. James says from verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So we just saw the, the fresh fruit of heavenly wisdom. See now the rancid fruit of earthly wisdom, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Of course, this is not an exhaustive list, but merely what James was specifically dealing with among his audience. Note what these two sinful characteristics have in common. The love of self. Someone with bitter jealousy in their heart cares only about themselves. They want what others have, with no regard for justice, no regard for the right of God to apportion to each as he sees fit. No regard for the contentment that they should have before God. None of that. It's all about me, me, me. And selfish ambition is the same. I want what I want, even wanting what you have, and I do not care who I have to step on, who I have to crush, who I have to injure, to get what I want. Forget looking after the interests of others. My selfish ambition drives me forward, right over you, if necessary. Now I just, I just love how consistent the word of God is. When Paul wrote to the Philippians about how they were to look out for the interests of others, he used Jesus, who was humble, as a prime example. Thus, a clear connection between, between selflessness and humility was made. And James makes the same connection between selflessness and humility. Those who rely on earthly wisdom do not have the humility that results from heavenly wisdom. And so rather than looking out for the interests of others, they care only about themselves. You see how that works? 
Humble people are selfless. Proud people are selfish. Humble people know that they deserve nothing, and so they expect nothing. Thus they are joyful and grateful when they receive any good thing, no matter how small it is. Proud people, on the other hand, think that they deserve everything, and so they are easily dissatisfied, constantly covetous, bitterly jealous, and driven by their own selfish passions. So friends, think on these things the next time you find yourself being discontent with what God has given you. Don't operate according to demonic wisdom that would see you be angry that God hasn't given to you what he's given to someone else. Humble yourself and recognize that outside of Christ, you deserve nothing but punishment. And be glad for what you do have. Now as we go on, I think we should take some time to just look a little more closely at this word, jealousy. And the reason is that if you're paying attention, it could become confusing. What I mean is, is jealousy a bad thing? Our first reaction was to say, well, clearly it is. James is clearly talking about a bad thing. And we've also been trained by years of TV dramas to know that jealousy is a negative trait to display. It's almost always portrayed as ugly and possessive and abusive. Well, if that's what you think, consider Exodus 34, verses 13 and 14. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asher. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. So if jealousy is a bad thing, how can God, who is only good, be jealous? How are we to understand this? Well, when James speaks of bitter jealousy, the word used for jealousy is zelos. Greek word zealous. And if that sounds familiar, it's where we get our English word zeal. And it means excitement of mind, enthusiasm, passion, and fervor of spirit. So based on this, we can see that jealousy is not necessarily a bad or negative thing. You can be passionate, excited, enthused, or fervent about many things. Some good and some bad. What helps us understand the meaning of jealousy, though, is the context in which it's used. Think of a man with his wife. If his wife leaves him and goes to live with another man, that husband has every right to be jealous regarding his adulterous wife. What good husband wouldn't feel intense passion and zeal over his wife? Rightly speaking, his wife belongs to him. Such is the nature of marriage. The husband owns the wife, and the wife owns the husband. The two are one flesh by the command of God himself, and they ought not to be separated. And so it is in this sense that God presents himself to us in scripture. He is a jealous God with regards to his covenant people Israel. He is as a husband to them, and they are as his wife. But through their idolatry, scripture says, they continually hoard after the gods of other nations, whom their fathers had not known. And so God, in his zeal and passion for his wife Israel, both punishes Israel for her spiritual adultery to bring her back to himself and punishes the nations around her who bring her harm. And then, let's see how good your memories are. God speaks gently to his wife Israel and comforts her. Where have you heard that before? Remember last week, Pastor John talked from Isaiah 40, which is about God speaking comfort to his people. 
comforts his people Israel after he had allowed Babylon to exile them out of the land. I mean, we won't go into this now, but this idea of God being jealous over his people as a husband is jealous over his wife and then going after her and pursuing her to bring her back is the whole subject of the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. We could even talk about Jesus who felt strong, righteous jealousy over the misuse and abuse of God's temple. Remember when he made a whip of cords and he chased out all the money changers out of the temple. And he scattered all their coins and overturned their tables. His disciples, remember what they said when they saw it? They remember Psalm 69.9 which says, Zeal, or we could say, jealousy for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So in these two examples, we can see that righteous jealousy has to do with strong feelings of passion. And that passion is directed toward that which rightly belongs to you. The husband toward the wife. God towards his people. And Jesus toward the house of his heavenly father. So I ask you, is this then the kind of jealousy on display by those who live their lives by earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom? No. As we have already discussed, the bitterly jealous direct their passions toward that which they merely think that they deserve. What drives them is not a love for justice to have what is rightfully theirs, but what drives them is a lust after that which they merely want. For their own satisfaction. For their own glory, regardless of whether or not it belongs rightfully to someone else. And so they are driven along by their selfish passions. Earthly wisdom warps and distorts the concept of jealousy, zeal, and passion into something evil. And so ultimately, what results is what James says in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. There will be disorder in marriages when wives, jealous of their husband's right to lead the family, seek to usurp his role. Rather than submitting as they ought, they fight and quarrel. And husbands, not satisfied with their wives and failing to love their wives as Christ loved the church, look with burning passion at the wives of other men, leading to adultery and broken homes and possibly even murder. And there will be disorder in the church when members are not satisfied with their God-given spiritual gifts and covet those possessed by other members. And in the pride and boastfulness of earthly wisdom, the hand will really say to the feet, I have no need of you. The church then falls into disorder, disarray, and ceases to function as the buttress and pillar of the truth. Brothers and sisters, we need to be on guard against earthly wisdom for this very reason. Because what we have right here in this church, and I'm not talking about the building, I'm talking about the people. What we have is an oasis in a desert. Do you recognize that? I want us to recognize that to have sanctuary among the people of God, within a world that hates God and so hates us, and to have companions on this journey through the wilderness until we reach the promised land. To have all this is an immeasurable good that has been done to us by God. And if we are not on guard against earthly wisdom seeping into our thinking, and we start to fight with each other, and envy each other, and disregard each other, we will fall into disorder and vileness. 
And this local body will die and its members will be scattered. So perhaps some of you may be thinking to yourselves, well, that's not that big of a deal. There are other gospel-believing churches in Barbados. We pray for a few of them every Sunday, don't we? Well, that's true. But think of this. Why would we want to take our earthly demonic wisdom, which has just finished destroying our assembly, and take it into another assembly to destroy theirs also? Friends, let it not be said that the members of Covenant Reformed Baptist Church are like a plague that spreads and destroys every assembly that they're part of. No, we need to be on guard against earthly wisdom. I said at the outset of my message this morning that we needed to know the difference between the two kinds of wisdom because the danger for us is that we may sometimes think we are operating by heavenly wisdom, but in fact, we are using earthly wisdom. Let me give an example quickly of what this looks like. We may think of ourselves wise because of the truths to which we hold. We believe in the five solas of the Reformation and the five points of Calvin and so on. But instead of being humble in light of what we know, we may become arrogant. We may think that because we've gotten these aspects of the faith right, that we cannot be wrong about anything. So we may end up developing blind spots and actually failing to apply that which we know. Having excellent orthodoxy but terrible orthopraxy. Being puffed up in this way is not the result of heavenly wisdom. It's the result of earthly wisdom. And on the other end of the spectrum, we may think ourselves wise because we are so humble. You may say, who am I to say whether this doctrine or that doctrine is correct? Little old me. Oh, I'm much too humble to vote this person out of the church for, what did you call it? Grievous sin? Oh, I can't make that judgment. That's, I'm not God. Listen, that's not heavenly wisdom either. It may appear to be since it seeks to take a humble stance, but any wisdom that, dis that denies the clear instruction of God from Scripture is demonic. Get that clear. And furthermore, being humble simply means viewing oneself accurately. Not more highly than you ought, or more lowly than you ought. One is not being proud and arrogant when he states what the Bible says. God wants us to obey him. Not pretend that we are also humble that we couldn't possibly make judgment calls about what is right and wrong based on the things that are clear in Scripture. So friends, as we endeavor to tell the difference between heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom, let's keep in our minds what James says in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Heavenly wisdom is first pure. There is no trace of earthly wisdom mixed in with it. You don't have the option of creating a hybrid theology where you've got a little bit of earthly wisdom and a, a little bit of heavenly wisdom by which you live. Heavenly wisdom is pure. A mixed wisdom then does not come from God above. And heavenly wisdom is peaceable and gentle. Again, it leads to conflict resolution and conflict avoidance. It produces gentle responses, gentle words, gentle acts. Again, because the one who is wise according to heavenly wisdom understands that God, through nothing else but his grace and mercy, has made peace with him and has been gentle to him when he did not 
does not or will ever deserve it. And heavenly wisdom is open to reason. As said before, it makes you slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. It causes you to receive the word of truth eagerly and with meekness. It makes you enjoy the idea of hearing God's words so that any areas of sin in your life can be cleaned up. It does not make you assume that you are always correct, but teaches you that you are fallible and in daily need of correction and guidance from Scripture. When a brother or sister comes to you and says, Brother, I want to talk to you about this issue, you say, Great, let me hear what you have to say. Instead of instantly saying, You can't teach me nothing. Heavenly wisdom is also full of mercy and good fruits. Again, it causes you to remember that if you are in Christ, you were shown mercy. And that all those who follow Jesus are commanded to show mercy, just as they have been shown mercy. And then from that, good fruits or good works of charity and sacrifice follow. Heavenly wisdom is impartial and sincere. It's impartial and sincere. It doesn't lead you to favor those who seem more worthy because everyone is equal in God's sight. All have sinned and fallen short of His glory. All must repent or perish, just as we heard in our Bible reading this morning. It doesn't lead you to value the rich over the poor, or the powerful over the weak, or the beautiful over the less beautiful. None of these. It looks not at outward appearance, but it looks at the heart. Because of this, listen, because of this, the one who is wise according to heavenly wisdom can be trusted. He or she is sincere. They're real. They're not fake. You can be confident that they aren't befriending you or being nice to you simply to use you for their own selfish purposes. Or because they think that they can get, say, favors from the rich or status from the powerful or whatever else. Heavenly wisdom does not produce hypocrites and fakers and leads to a more trusting environment within the church. We don't have to fear one another. And finally, brothers and sisters, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James draws on the imagery of sowing a field, agriculture. It's imagery that would have been very familiar to the people of the day, to some of us as well. But the harvest being prepared here isn't wheat. It isn't corn. It's righteousness. James is telling us that we will produce righteousness in the fields of our lives when heavenly wisdom is employed. And why is that? Because heavenly wisdom brings peace. So that the sower can sow in peace. And this should make sense to us. Can you imagine trying to plant a field in a war zone? Can you imagine digging the ground and digging up a mine and blowing up? It, you can't. You can't plant a field when you're preoccupied with fighting and quarreling. So heavenly wisdom makes us peaceful and it puts an end to the warring and fighting so that we can sow good deeds in peace. And the result will be a harvest of righteousness and reaping of good rewards from our Father in heaven. Friends, rather than starving on the rancid fruit of earthly wisdom, wouldn't you rather reap a harvest of righteousness? Wouldn't you rather feast on the fruit of good rewards from God in peace with your brothers and sisters? 
We'll stop there for now. Chapter 3 ends on this note of making peace because it is needed for chapter 4 where James gives special attention to the issue of fighting and quarreling. And that will be our focus tonight. So I hope to see many of you there. But hopefully now our minds are prepared with heavenly wisdom. <laughs>